faithful because he's good. All right, what'd you come up with? Yes. Yes, what? Both? He's faithful because he's good. And he's good because he's faithful. We've been doing a series through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to talk about God's goodness and his faithfulness. Um, Prepare to drink from a fire hydrant. That's about what it's like. Uh, We could spend six months talking about each of these two things. Um, In the Bible, over 600 times, it speaks about the goodness of God. Uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 and 19, Moses Moses had some pretty uh, amazing correspondence with God, some, 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 not correspondence, some questions. I mean, they had this relationship where Moses asked some pretty serious questions, and God answered them. And at one particular time, Moses said this, Exodus 33, 18, please let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. And the Lord said, I will let my goodness pass in front of you. And I just think that is so, like, like, what exactly did Moses expect to see? Let me see your glory. And, and, and I think if, like, because I wondered, what does that mean? You know, uh, well, t- the actual definition of the word means your honor, your reverence, your abundance, your splendor, your majesty. What does that look like for God? But aside from that, Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and he said, I will show you my goodness. My goodness. So God's glory lies in his goodness. Um, When Moses saw the glory of God, his first understanding in that was that God is good. It's almost as if Moses wanted to see the splendor, the majesty, the awe, the greatness of God. And and he says, you want to see my glory? Here's my goodness. That's what I will show you. That's how God uh, showed that to Moses. Um, Someone said this, David Guzik, in his commentary on Exodus said, often we come to the place where we are always trying to balance God out. We suppose that Uh, There is something like a yin and a yang in the universe in the sense of dark and light, good and evil, law and grace. But God himself is unbalanced in this sense. He is entirely good. That's the character. That's the nature. That's who God is. God defines himself in many different words. God is love, for example. But guess what? God is also good. Okay? A little bit further down, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, kind of continuing that conversation with Moses, he says, or it says, Then the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. He asked to see his glory. God said, I will show you my goodness. Then he passes before him. How'd you like to have a back seat to that? Backstage pass. And then he says, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and merciful God, Patient, always faithful, ready to forgive. And he continues to show his love, loving kindness, is that word we'll get to. Um, 
uh, to thousands of generations, forgiving wrongdoing, uh, wrongdoing, disobedience, and sin. And so all of these qualities, I think, could be summarized in the goodness of God, that he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is patient, that he's always faithful, that he's forgiving, he's loving. Uh, I think that's what it means when we say that God is good. Uh, because if you think about it, man, how do you define the goodness of God? I think the, all of those things uh, define it. In the, in the Psalms, which are the part of the poetic books in the Bible, uh, there's lots of talk about the goodness of God. Psalm 27, 13 says, Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. The psalmist says that the arena for the goodness of God on display is planet Earth. Uh, Psalm 31 says, Oh, how abundant is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for those who fear thee. We are also invited in Psalm 34, 8 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm chapter 23 says, Surely, in one translation, goodness and mercy, loving kindness is another word for that, will follow me all the days of my life. Paul had great confidence in the goodness of God when he said all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why do all things work together for good? Why? And how do all things work together for good? You ever thought about that? That's a familiar scripture, Romans 8. All things work together for good to those who love him. And how does that happen? Better yet, why does it happen? Why do, it doesn't say all things are good, because they're not. But all things work together for good. Why? Why does that happen? Because God is good. And he works all things together. Somehow. For good. Whether in this life or in the life to come, it all works out. Isn't that, isn't that something to hold on to? Sound like a good thing? That's an awesome thing. So God is the source of all good. And so, 3 John 11 says, He who does good is of God. So I was thinking about this as well. Like, if you don't believe in God, maybe you're agnostic, like God's up there, but we don't really, can't really communicate with him. God sort of wound up the clock at creation and then turned and walked away from everything. Or if you just don't believe in God at all. I was thinking about this. How do you define something as good or evil without God? I mean, what makes something good or what makes it evil? I mean, how do, you, how do you get to that place? Well, we, as followers of Jesus, we believe that God tells us what's good and what's evil. We believe that God is the ultimate good. We believe that his word is true, and in that, he tells us good and evil. That's how we know what's right, what's wrong, what's truth, and what's error how we should live our life, how we should not live our life. And so it turns out the truth, according to Josh McDowell, uh, is, 
a Christian apologist, if you've never read any of his stuff. Josh McDowell says that truth has to be three things. It has to be. It has to be universal. It has to be universal. It has to apply to all places. Because if truth is here in, in America, this is true for us. It's got to be true in China. And it's got to be true in India. You can't change truth depending on where you live or what your, uh, uh, your, your neighborhood is. Not only that, it has to be constant. Truth has to remain through all times. Like if something was true 100 years ago, but it's really not true now, or something's true now, but, you know, in 30 years, well, we don't believe that. Well, then it's not true then. How can you establish truth if it changes based on time? Like a lot of people say, oh, the Bible's old-fashioned. Really? You don't think thou shalt not kill is, is not a good thing? You don't, you don't believe in that? You think that's old-fashioned? Uh, you think that thou shalt not steal? We ought to just erase that from the books too? I mean, I think that's pretty good stuff. I think that should always apply. But not only that, truth, Josh McDowell says, has to be objective. That means it's not something that you determine. It's not something that you make up. Uh, that, that's, you, can't, you can't just, because if, because if truth is, is, is subjective, who determines what truth is? Well, we know the answer to that. The people with power and the people with the biggest guns, they tell you what truth is. Fedor Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist, said this about that. Without God, we lose an objective basis by which to make moral judgments. That without a higher law above humanity, who gets to decide moral truth? True morality stems from the, ah, the character and nature of God and is binding on his creation. Without God, good becomes a relative term that is always changing. That's true. That's true. And so as we've been doing this series through the fruit of the Spirit, we've been very careful to tie each one of these things to the character of God. Because He's our source. So God is good. He tells us about that about himself. We believe in an ultimate good, and that is God, and he's the source of that. Now, we have a problem. I don't know about you, but I have this problem too. Paul addresses it. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Man, try as I may. Okay? Paul says this in Romans 7, 18, nothing good dwells in me. That's Paul the Apostle. And if Paul the Apostle said there's nothing good that dwells in him, I got no shot. I got no shot of anything good dwelling in me. None. None. Okay. But Paul the Apostle would also tell those who are followers of Jesus, he says this, do good to all men. Well, you just said nothing good dwells in me. And I'll do good to all men. Jesus commanded even his followers to do good to your enemies. Ah. Jesus also said that a good tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit. What? Okay. How does this happen? 
Because the Lord deems certain things as good. And if the Lord says it's good, it's good. Here's the good news. The Lord says that you are good. I know you don't always believe that. And I know you don't always act like it. Because I know I don't. But as a follower of Jesus, he looks at you as a son, as a daughter, warts and all. And he says that you are good. Now, for some of you, you may have never heard that before. And some of us are trying to earn that title from God when you already have it. Because you think if you just do enough good things, maybe God will tell you you're good. Here's the news. He already has. He already has. Oh, we don't always do good things. But he looks at you as his child and says, you are good. Okay? All right. So Luke chapter 18, verse 18 through 28, somebody asked Jesus a question. I love it when people ask Jesus questions, but I love it even more the way that he answers. We call this man the rich young ruler. Young man, balling, making a bunch of money doing well, an up-and-comer in Jerusalem or wherever the heck he was. Probably wasn't Jerusalem, but. So the ruler asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know, sometimes the way that Jesus answers questions make you go, what? Okay. See, the man called Jesus good teacher. Why did he call him good? Because he said, well, this man does such good things that he must be good. And it turns out that this man believed that as long as you do good things, you will be good with God. And Jesus was trying to show him that it's not just a matter of doing good things, but it's a matter of being in relationship and having God first in your life. Okay? This man thought he, that Jesus had gained this position of goodness by his works. And he's also implying that if he, Jesus, were truly good, then he would be God, which he is. But the man missed this whole thing because he was trapped in just doing good things and not just being in relationship with God. Okay, so goodness is the quality in a man or a woman who is ruled by and aims at what is good. It's the quality of someone who was ruled by and aims at what is good. Goodness, it turns out, is not just a passive quality, but it's a deliberate preference of right to wrong, the firm and persistent resistance of all moral evil, and the choosing and following of all moral good. That's what goodness is. So let me give you three things that I think we need to do to walk in this character trait of Jesus called goodness. Number one, we need to discern good from evil. You can write that down if you like to. We need to discern good from evil. Lexus, could you hand me that water, please, right by your foot? 
Thank you very much. Discerning good from evil. Turns out the Bible tells us that we need to do that. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, uh, through, well, this is just the first part of it. It says, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Turns out we're supposed to discern that through the Word of God. Secondly, we're to do good rather than evil or choose good rather than evil because we've been discerned and we're being trained and the Word of God is telling us the difference between the two, then we are to actually do that. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Here's why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Now look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of his visitation. Discern good from evil. Don't be afraid to call evil evil. You know, we live in a society that no longer likes to do that. That's not bad. What, well, who are you to say something's wrong or evil? No, I'm not. I'm not anybody, and I'm sure not judging. I'm just saying according to the standard, which is the word of God, that's wrong. Those lines get blurred in society. We're to do good rather than evil. And, and Peter says, let people see your good deeds. That means that, that it's the way that I live my life. And it's not because do good things because that's a good virtue. Of course it's a good virtue. But what makes it good? God makes it good. God tells us that it's good. Therefore, we should do it because it's who he is. And people should see that. So the people of God should by nature be people who do good things because that's, he, that's who he is. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why we do We have to keep remind, reminding ourselves of this, all right? So... People will see our good deeds, and they will, they will give glory to God. Moses asked to see God's glory. He saw his goodness. People want to see God's glory. They're going to see you doing good things. Is that interesting? If people don't see the glory of God, it might be because they don't see us doing God's work, which are good things. And then pursue goodness. Proverbs eleven twenty seven says, He who diligently... Seeks good, seeks favor. But he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. Pursue goodness. What does that mean for you? I don't know. What do you want me to give you? Ten things to do to be good? I have no clue. I'm working on my own goodness, okay? Yeah, follow God's spirit. Sometimes other people will see that. And you might even get a question as to why. Why do you guys do this? By the way, rescue mission Friday night. Man. You know, Jim and Heather, thank you guys so much for just kind of 
arranging that for us. If you've never gone to the rescue mission and served, you ought to go. It's a month away. We'll talk about it again. You ought to go. You know, those people are so appreciative. I, I, can't, I, I lose track of how many times those people who have nothing are, say thank you and, and, and how appreciative they are. It's amazing. It's like, no, no, thank you. They're like, no, thanks, thanks for the guys. For do- it's amazing. It's amazing, right? That's a good deed. And it's not a good deed because, well, we, we'll, we just want to do good things because we should. No, it's because, you know, the Lord has sent us to do good things. And that's one way you could do it. Just a little paid political advertisement for that. Okay? The goodness of God. Now the faithful. Everybody say faithfulness. Woo! Faithfulness. Say this word. Immutability. Say it again. Immutability. What is that? That's a 50-cent theological term. Write that down. Immutability. Google it if you can't spell it. All right? I don't know how many M's are in immutability. Spell it. Hey, immutability. You know what that is? It is the character or the attribute of God that doesn't change. It's, it's God's consistent character throughout all of eternity. Aren't you glad that God doesn't change? I mean, how crazy would it be? If we worshiped a God who tomorrow said, hey, you know what, commandment number seven, okay, we're done with that. That's out. What? Yeah, you know, version 5.0. You get the new commandments, bro? Oh, you thought the old ones were hard. Man, the, no. No, God doesn't change. I don't know about you, but I need that consistency in my life. I don't want, my, I don't want the core tenets of my faith changing all the time. Yeah, we used to believe this. Now we don't believe it anymore. What? Who decided that? Who's making this stuff up that it changes like that? It's his immutability. James 1.17 says in him, there's no variation or shadow of turning. Um, God doesn't mutate from one thing to another. uh, He's not, by the way, subject to the limitations of time and space. And so it's not like, well, you 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 know, the Lord's getting older now, so, you know, things are changing in heaven. No. No, it's not like us. We change, right? And I say that all the time. Yeah, you know, man, I'm just not, yeah, things are changing, bro. I'm getting older. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, he, uh, Christ upholds all things by the power of his word. Uh, Hebrews 13, 8, uh, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad? Yes, I'm, I'm so thankful. It's like, like, you know what? Golly, man. You know, like that whole Sermon on the Mount thing? No, no, we don't believe that anymore, bro. We don't have to love our enemies no more. It's on now, bro. You know what? Okay, so I can like take a swing at my neighbor now? Yeah, go for it, bro. Yeah, you know that, uh, you know, if, if someone hits you off from the other cheek also? No, offer them a lead right now, bro. It's, it's all different. You don't have to. That would be crazy. God is constant. Therefore, he is faithful. God is constant. Therefore, he's faithful. In the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on the faithfulness of God, in particular in relationship to his people. We call that covenant. Another word that you'll see time and again is loving kindness. The faithfulness of God and the loving kindness or the covenant love of God. Here's what covenant love is. Covenant love is God saying, I love you. Okay? I love you. Okay, you don't have to earn my love. I'm God. God, I'm telling you 
that I love you and I want you in relationship with me. And I know you're not always going to be good. And I know that you're not always going to get it right. And I, and I, and I know that. But, but I'm committing myself to you. That's my loving kindness. My covenant w- with you. And so his loving kindness and his faithfulness are, so often are linked together. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, and note the two words. Know therefore that the Lord is God. He is God, the faithful one who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see the link between his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Psalm 35, 36, 5 and 7. Your loving kindness, O God, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Hey, that could almost be a song, huh? Could that, could that be a song? I, I think we could. Pete, can you put that song to music, man? That, 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 that right there? I, I don't know. Okay. Psalm 100, verse 4 and 5. You might know this part. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and to prove that there is basketball in heaven, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting and his, what's that word? faithfulness to all generations. See the the link between the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God, and and, and his faithfulness. Okay? Um, It's the object of our praise. Psalm 89.1 says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Uh, The faithfulness of of God turns out to be a really big deal. Really big deal. Uh, And Jesus, it turns out, is the faithful one. It says in Hebrews 2, verse uh, 14 through 17, and I believe, by the way, this is like an amazing, amazing Christmas scripture verse because it talks about the need for Jesus to come and be with us. By the way, by the way, Even as followers of Jesus, we get so caught up in Christmas and all of the stuff that goes with it that we forget the reason he came. I mean, it's almost like, guys, it's almost like for some people, that's their manger scene. We believe that he came, but we don't celebrate like he came. And it's like, the manger's empty. There's no, he's not there. I mean, yeah, we'll believe it, but, you know, I got this to do. I mean, don't, don't get so caught up in all that, that, that that's what our Christmas ends up looking like. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Unplug. Take some time. Yeah, enjoy the, the season. But guess what? Christmas is something we should celebrate every day, I think. So look at this. Therefore, since... These, his children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood the physical nature of mankind. That's what we are. He himself, in a similar manner, also shared in the same physical nature, but without sin. Jesus came and lived as a man, but without sin. So that through through experiencing death, 
he might make powerless, ineffective, impotent him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free all those who, through the haunting fear of death, were held in slavery throughout their lives. For as we all know, he, Christ, does not take hold of the fallen angels to give them a helping hand, but he does take hold of the fallen descendants of Abraham, that's us, extending to them his hand of deliverance. Verse 17, therefore, it was essential that he had to be made like his brothers, mankind, in every respect. It was essential that Jesus Christ came and lived on earth. There was no other way to have a bridge between heaven and earth except Jesus came down. He had to. In, he had to be made in flesh. He had to be made up into a man. He had to come and live as Jesus who walked on earth. He had to do that. Okay? Uh, in every respect, so that, here's why, he might, by experience, become a merciful and faithful high priest in things related to God, to make atonement or propitiation for the people's sins, thereby uh, wiping away sin, satisfying divine justice, and providing a way of reconciliation between God and mankind. Jesus is the faithful one. Revelation 19, 11, and 12 says this, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called whom? Faithful and true. Do you know that when Jesus comes back, riding a white horse, I mean, every eye will see him? Uh, that's going to be an amazing thing. I mean, like, that's going to be, like, that's got to be, like, the greatest day ever when Christ returns a white horse? That's okay. And guess what his name is? He who sat on it is called faithful and true. Impressive. That's his name. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So the New Testament is full of faithfulness. Do you know that faith, his faithfulness is a source of strength in our temptation? Because he's faithful, we can endure temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, so that you, you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape, so that you're able to endure. Okay? How about the assurance of our salvation? Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us seize and hold tightly the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is reliable and trustworthy and what? Faithful. Oh, you thought you were going to heaven because you were good. He who promises faithful. He began a good work in you. He's going to be faithful to complete that work. We're all a work in process. Um, forgiveness of sins, 1 John uh, uh, 1. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous uh, or just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, the New American Standard says. Do you know that his faithfulness is a source of refuge when suffering comes? 
1 Peter 4, 9 says, Therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I read this out of a Greek commentary. The position of the words in the sentence throw great emphasis on his faithfulness as the basis for comfort in suffering. His faithfulness. Um, so let me give you this advice regarding faithfulness that we could spend six months talking about. You ready? This is profound. You might want to write this down. If you're a writer, put it in your phone. You ready? Be faithful in little things. When it comes to God, don't worry about whether or not you're willing to die for him. Just live for him today. Don't worry about being faithful tomorrow. Worry about being faithful today in the little things. Jesus said in Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in very little, in a very little thing, is also, also faithful in much. Goodness, faithfulness, not just good attributes because they're nice qualities. Turns out that's who he is. That's how we should live our lives. Okay? Um, we're going to uh, take a missions offering in just a moment. I want to read this to you. And then we'll take that offering and then we'll show the little video, um, music video during this. Listen to this. Speaking of the faithfulness of, of God. So ushers, if you prepare yourselves for the missions offering. That's your cue. This is a guy named Sherwood Wirt. And he captures the mood of Christmas on a Christmas card when he said this. The people of that time were being heavily taxed and faced every prospect of a sharp increase in power to cover expanding military expenses. The threat of world domination by a cruel, ungodly, power-intoxicated band of men was ever just below the threshold of consciousness. Moral deterioration had corrupted the upper levels of society and was moving rapidly into the broad base of the populace. Intense nationalistic feeling was cl clashing openly with new and sinister forms of imperialism. Conformity was the spirit of the age. Government handouts were being used with increasing lavishness to keep the population from rising up and throwing out the leaders. Interest rates um, were spiraling upward in the midst of an inflated economy. External religious observances were considered a political asset. An abnormal emphasis was being placed upon sports and athletic competition. Racial tensions were at the breaking point, yet in such a time and amid such a people, a child was born to a migrant couple who had just signed up for a fresh round of taxation and who were soon 
to become political exiles. And the child who was born was, among other things, called Emmanuel, God is with us. God is good, and God is faithful. God is good, and God is faithful. God is good, and all the time, it's true, right? It's true, it's true. We have uh, 